Well, good morning. I invite you to take your copy of the Scriptures, and if you would, turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, and allow me to say what a privilege it is to be with you, and not a little excitement on this Sunday to have this as a the Sunday to be with you. I was saying to Pastor Vanderveen when we were out on the street, it reminded me of something of the, in the ministry of Dr. Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel when uh, he was preaching during the Second World War. And uh, a bomb actually dropped down the street. There was a barracks down the street from Westminster Chapel. And a bomb hit down the street and shook the entire building of Westminster Chapel while Dr. Lloyd-Jones was in the midst of prayer. And Lloyd-Jones continued his prayer. And as the prayer, as, it, as he stopped his prayer and there was some movement in the building, Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, if you're concerned about the structural integrity of the building, simply move underneath the balconies. And somebody said, Calvinist. <laughs> and I just want to commend how your theology was reflected in your biography as you calmly made your way from the building and in fact came back when you had the opportunity to be gone. And so I uh, thank you for that. Well, it's a privilege to be with you this morning and uh, to take you to the Scriptures from this great text of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 6. And if you found your way there, would you allow me to read in your hearing now God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient Word, and then we'll have a word of prayer together. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Would you join me in a brief word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, uh, with all that has happened this morning, we thank you that we are safe. And Lord, there could be no safer place for us to be than in the Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of God. But Lord, as we come to this in scripturated vision, would you help us to have a sense of the awesomeness of your presence, of the wonder of your glory? Lord, would you allow us to see you high and lifted up? And then, Lord, we pray, would you do us the mercy of searching our hearts, of showing us ourselves, showing us our sin. And above all, we pray then that you would show us our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now, Lord, we pray as the Word of God is preached, we ask that it would come not in the demonstration 
of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that when we leave this place, our faith might not rest in men, but in God. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It was Tuesday morning, and our family was getting ready for the day. The phone rang. It was my mother, and she said, turn on the TV. I said, why? What's going on? She said, something has happened in New York City. We turned on the TV, and we're shocked to see the two great towers there in New York City burning. It was, of course, September 11, 2001. And in the light of that national catastrophe, every preacher in the country had to prayerfully decide, what text do I go to on Sunday morning? I went to Isaiah chapter 6, this great text, because it it gives the people of God a God-centered gospel vision in a crumbling world. And since that time, we've had a global pandemic. We've had Russia and Ukraine. We've got Israel in the Middle East and a lot more. And aside from armed global conflicts in recent years, we've also experienced a cultural crisis as the worldview and the morals of our own nation have begun to distort and to crumble beyond all recognition. From our own neighborhoods to the nations, our world has become an increasingly risky place to be the people of God who desire to live the will of God. And then, of course, there are those personal crises. There's that diagnosis. There's the crippling grief. And then there might be that financial collapse. It was just in such a moment that God gave Isaiah a life-shattering, life-giving vision to equip him for life and ministry in a crumbling world. The world as he had known it no longer was the way it had been. And while we won't get to Isaiah's call this morning down in verse 8, what we're going to see is the vision that God gave him to prepare him for that call. So as we get into this vision, here's the takeaway. Here's what you need to walk away with burning on your heart in the front of your mind as we get to this vision this morning. When God calls you to live and minister in a world that is crumbling, you need a renewed vision of God, exalted in majesty and abundant in mercy. That's it. When God calls you to live and minister in a world that is crumbling, you need a renewed vision of God exalted in majesty and abundant in mercy. So could I invite you to see three dimensions of this vision with me this morning. First of all, we're going to see God exalted in majesty. And then if we see that God exalted in majesty, what we will also then see is the reality of our own sin before this God. And then we're going to see the good news of God's abundant mercy. So would you open your text with me, look back at verses 1 to 4, and let's again see God exalted in majesty. Uzziah was a great king who led Jerusalem and Judah for decades until pride got the better of him. 
Second Chronicles 26 tells us that during Uzziah's reign, he went to war with the nations surrounding them and that threatened Judah. And he was so strong that they actually became, he became a power in the region and he extended the nation's borders. He fortified Judah's defenses. He built an impressive military and he increased their natural resources. Uzziah did what good kings were supposed to do. He protected and he prospered the nation. And Judah had enjoyed the benefits of his rule for 52 years. But when Uzziah became strong, he became proud. And he reached out for an office that God had not given to him, so God judged him, and he spent the rest of his life and his reign in isolation as a leper as his nation began to decline. And at the same time, a new superpower was on the rise, a nation called Assyria. And when the blitzkrieg of the Assyrian army rolled over a nation, they did the kind of things that the news anchors warn you about before they show you the footage. The great prospering, protecting king is gone. Assyria is on the doorstep. Those are the news headlines in the year that King Uzziah dies. So God provides his prophet a vision of who is really on the throne. The vision as we have it is designed to remind Isaiah who really is the king, who really reigns, It begins, you notice, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Then down in verse 5, Isaiah interprets what he's seen. My eyes have seen the King. So here's what's happening. When God's people were living in the midst of headlines like those, God gave them a vision of Himself. Exalted in majesty. Now if you go to the art museum and you see a great portrait, you stop and notice the details and enjoy it for all that it's worth. Perhaps you notice this brush stroke. You notice the shading over there and how the artist has brought his vision to life. My friends, if you want to be equipped for life and ministry when your world is crumbling, it'll do us good to linger for a little bit in front of this vision and appreciate all of its contours. Isaiah records that he saw the Lord, Adonai. That's a title that means master, owner. The one with absolute power and right to do everything that he pleases. The throne was high and lifted up. That means that it is, a, it is higher and up above every other throne. And the train of his robe of the one who sits on this throne fills the temple. Now what you need to know is that the grandeur of a royal robe was a cue to everyone who looked on the dignity and the splendor of the person who wore it. Last year, we got to watch the coronation of King Charles III of the United Kingdom. And if you watch the coronation, you remember that, he, that King Charles wore royal robes. When his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, Queen Elizabeth II was uh, crowned in 1952, her robe was 20 feet lo- 21 feet long. It took the Royal School of Needlework 3,500 hours to embroider, embroider that robe. 21 feet long, thousands of hours of superior, superior craftsmanship filling the aisle of Westminster Abbey. Well, here, it's not just the aisle It's the whole space that's filled up. The symbol of the robe, the excess of the Lord's robe engulfs. It fills the temple, which means there's no room for another. 
And the power of His presence is seen and it's felt. The foundations of the great building shook and the whole place fills with smoke. So at the center of this vision is the Lord, the absolute Master of all on a high throne engulfing the room in majesty and smoke fills the building as it's shaken to its core. And then there's the circle of the amazing attendance of this king. Think about a royal court with pages and servants waiting and scurrying to do the bidding of their sovereign. Do you notice who this king is attended by? Majestic angelic beings. Seraphim. Now we're not told how many are at court around the throne, but these angelic beings are humbled and in awe at the presence of that Lord. They cover their face and their feet, a sign of humility and reverence. With two of their wings, they still fly, a symbol of their readiness to do the bidding of the one who sits on the throne. So exalted is the one on the throne that his servants are majestic, angelic beings who bow in awe of him and stand ready to move in his service. You notice that they also perpetually praise the Lord. As we listen in on their praise, it tells us about the one who majestically sits on this throne. They praise Him as almighty, they praise Him as holy, and they praise Him as omnipresent. Notice the title, Lord of Hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. Now I know this congregation knows Luther's hymn, and you know the line, Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth His name. From age to age the same, and He must win the battle. Sabaoth means hosts, the great gathered force, the regiments of the heavenly army. This is the title that David goes after Goliath with when he takes him on. You come at me with sword and spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. You know that title is used 62 times for the Lord in the book of Isaiah. And coming from the lips of these beings, these angelic beings, that title means that whatever armies exist on earth or in heaven, this Lord is almighty over them. So you say, John, what does that mean? Well, it means that great Uzziah, who you relied on for your protection and prosperity, was not the almighty commander. The terrifying hosts that are amassing at your border are not ultimately in command. And what we need to see, brothers and sisters, when the culture is crumbling and all the risks seem to be multiplying against the people of God, is that we need to see that there is a God, there is a Lord who is Master Almighty over all, over the forces of nature, over angels and spiritual beings, over presidents and their policies, over foreign terrors and tyrants and armies, and over sickness and markets and media. But He's not just Almighty. Notice that He's holy. If He was just Almighty, it would be of no comfort if He was capable of corruption or evil. He'd be just like the superstitious pagan gods of the nations. Unreliable, fickle, vindictive, unjust. But the Lord who sits on this throne 
is entirely separate from the corruption and contamination of evil and sin. He's entirely separate from moral weakness or compromise. He is infinitely and impeccably complete in purity. He's holy. And that to an extreme perfection. He is holy, holy, holy. The words in Lewis and his tale about Narnia come to mind when one of the children is asking about Aslan, the great king, the rightful king of Narnia. And he says, is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver replies and says, safe? Safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. This king is almighty. And he is holy. He's good. But then would you also notice that he's omnipresent. The great angelic praise says, the whole earth is full of his glory. I remember the first time that I ever really heard this passage preached. It was J.I. Packer at a Ligonier conference. And if you ever heard J.I. Packer preach, you know there wasn't much by way of dynamic going on. He was the Oxford Don, straining his eyes to see, and occasionally when he got excited, he would gesture like this. And when Packer was done opening up this vision, I couldn't move. Such was the palpable presence of the holy, holy, holy God. And when he opened up this text, he talked about this this description. The whole earth is full of His glory as God's ubiquity. What it means is the Lord is present everywhere, all the time, all at once. What does that mean? It means He's not like the pagan gods. He's not limited in His territory. My friends, there's not a zone, there's not a region, there's not a crevice, there's not a crack, there's not a corner where this King does not reside and rule over all. The whole earth is full of His glory. We need to see God exalted in majesty. But if we do, there's going to be a response. So buckle up, because here comes the response. Verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If we see the Lord exalted in majesty, here's the next thing we need to see. We need to see the reality of our sin before this God. I remember the images back in 2001. If you're old enough, maybe you remember seeing the images as those buildings were coming down and people were looking up and they couldn't believe what they were seeing. They stood like this. absolutely awestruck and terrified. Maybe the images we're more used to at present are the expressions of anguish and terror in Ukraine or in the Middle East. But Isaiah is absolutely shattered by what he saw. Woe is me! I am lost. You know, lost doesn't quite capture the devastation. The word means utterly ruined, doomed, Undone, as the old version put it. This is a cry of calamity, even terror. It's all over for me. I've just seen the Lord. He's shattered by his own guilt. 
But when we hear the sin that so, he was so scandalized by, we might be tempted to say, Isaiah, aren't you overreacting just a little bit? I'm a man of an unclean lip. Really? That's not the typical headline making sin, is it? It doesn't go, woe is me, I'm a murderer. He doesn't say, woe is me, I'm a thief. Woe is me, I'm an embezzler. I'm undone in the presence of God because of what comes out of my mouth. I'm a man of unclean lips. Now what does this mean? Does it mean that Isaiah was foul-mouthed? Does it mean he was a gossip? Does it mean he was a slanderer? Well, those would all mean he had unclean lips. For example, if, if you just give me a moment, listen to Romans chapter 1, how the Apostle Paul describes the sins that deserve God's wrath. Just listen for a second. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then he goes on, according to God's righteous decree, those who practice such things deserve to die. And then he's going to say this in chapter 2, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now, if you're like me listening to that list, there's not one of us gets a pass. Not one of us gets an excuse. Which tells us that the holy, holy, holy one who sits on the throne of the universe takes our culturally acceptable sins much more seriously than we do. But I actually think we've got a clue to what Isaiah's particular problem was. In Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13, you remember he said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Here's what God says about his people's lips in Isaiah 29 13. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Here's what was going on in Israel. They were saying the right religious things when God didn't have their heart. They were faking it with God. And I'm convinced that what was going on with Isaiah, here's Isaiah, now a priest in the temple seeing the Lord. And he's realizing that what comes off of his lips doesn't match up with what his heart says and what he's doing in his heart and how he's living his life. He's a hypocrite. Perhaps another takeaway from this is that we don't take any of our sins seriously enough. When we're confronted with our sin, here's what we typically do. We diminish, we deflect, we dissimulate, we defend, we deny. Because we don't see the exalted majesty of the one whose glory fills the whole earth as well as the private places and secret conversations in the corners of our life. So may I ask you something this morning? Is the holy, holy, holy Lord exposing anything in your life by His presence this morning? And may I just say to you, if you're pretending with God, you're playing chicken with the Lord of hosts and you're going to lose. But there's good news. And the good news is actually found in verses 6 to, six to 7. Look back with me if you would at the text and we see the good news. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, 
this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. So when we're confronted by the scandal of our own sin, we tend to do one of two things. We psychologize it. We tell ourselves that the devastation that we feel is just the baggage that we all carry and we actually will be helped by seeing God as a little more therapeutic than majestic. A loving God understands He doesn't condemn anybody. I'm okay, you're okay. God is happy with me without having to deal with that nasty thing called guilt. Or here's the other thing we do. We, we religionize it. We try to deal with the scandal that our soul feels by performing rituals ourselves for God. We multiply religious rules and routine so that we can actually hide from the majesty of God through our religiosity. I think of that classic scene in the old movie, The Mission, if you've seen it with Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons. And there's that scene where Robert De Niro is carrying his armor on his back and his bare hands and feet. He's climbing up a waterfall, bloodying himself. And the reason he's doing it is he's murdered his brother. And he's got to pay for what he did. The Lord doesn't look at Isaiah and say, if you can manage to get yourself up the steps of this altar on your knees and up to my throne, I'll cover your sin. Nor does He say to Isaiah, Isaiah, you have misunderstood me, poor chap. You're not as bad as you think you are. No. The Lord Himself sends His servant The majestic king stoops from his throne and he provides exactly what the unclean man needs to be in the king's presence. The stone that came from the altar symbolized a sacrifice had already been made so that Isaiah's religious fakery and all of his other sins had been forgiven through sacrifice. His hypocrisy was erased. It's taken away, no longer on the books because God Almighty, holy, omnipresent Himself met His need. But here's what you need to know this side of the resurrection today. The good news is actually better than even Isaiah had. Because like all of the Old Testament story and sacrificial system, this was a pointer. This was preparation for the moment when God Himself would come down in the person of His Son to meet the need of sinfully shattered souls. The Old Testament scholar E.J. Young tells us when he comments on Isaiah 6, that who Isaiah saw in the form of a vision was the one who would later come as the Christ. And he says that because in John chapter 12, the Apostle John picks up on Isaiah chapter 6 and he says this, Isaiah said these things because he saw His, that's Jesus, glory and spoke of Him. John Calvin's commenting on this text in John's Gospel said, John, never tell, John tells us that it was the Christ and justly, for God never revealed Himself to the fathers but in His eternal Word and only begotten Son. Brothers and sisters, listen to this. In the gracious plan of God in the fullness of time, it was not an angel of God who was sent from the throne of God, but the Son of God. The one who had shattered Isaiah with the disclosure of His majesty, Philippians 2 tells us, did not consider the display of His majesty something to be hung onto, but He humbled Himself 
and in the fullness of time at His incarnation took on our nature to live and serve as Jesus, the Savior of sinners. And He provided not a stone from the altar, but He provided His own life and His own blood on the cross. And His sacrifice was the final finished sacrifice for sin and it's by His shed blood that our guilt is taken away and our sin is atoned for. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is declared righteous by a grace, by grace is His gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. My friends, in God's abundant mercy, He provided forgiveness and cleansing by sending His Son to give Himself as the final, full, sufficient sacrifice for people with unclean lips and unclean hearts and unclean lives. And then He raised Him from the dead in majesty and seated Him at His right hand as Lord over all. And wonder of wonders, when we receive that Christ by faith alone, by grace alone, God gives us His righteousness. He imputes His righteousness to us. He wipes out our sin, takes it off the books, and on the books gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what's more, He then gives us the Holy Spirit by whom He cleanses us and gives us a new heart and sets us apart to be holy and with our lips and with our lives to serve the King of Kings. So let me make this appeal to you this morning. If you've come in to 10th Presbyterian Church and you feel the weight of your guilt and you don't know what to do with it, here's what you do with it. You take it to Jesus. He's sufficient. He's final. And in Jesus Christ, God will forgive you. And God will cleanse you. If you're a long-time member of this church, this is where you come, this is where you worship. Understand this. In Jesus Christ, God has forgiven you. He has wiped your sin away and He's given you the Holy Spirit so that you now can and must pursue holiness in Christ. As you look to Christ, as you depend on Christ, and as you follow Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we thank You for the glorious Gospel. Oh, in Your wisdom, in Your love, in Your goodness, in Your power, You did what the law could not do. You did what we could not do for ourselves in sending Your Son, Jesus. You are robed in majesty and You love to forgive. You're abundant in mercy. So Lord Jesus, would You, wherever the hearers of Your Word are today, would You move them further to faith in Jesus. And Lord, we pray for this church that You have so blessed, that You have so used. Would You give them a vision of Yourself, exalted in majesty and abundant in mercy, as You commission them to live and witness for Jesus in this world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and God's people say, Amen.